So this is the final, um, final message in my series on happiness. What is it? And I wanted to start with some pictures to test us if we can see what looks happy and what doesn't look happy. All right, so we're gonna, this is a test. We'll see, I think we'll pass. What do you think? Oh, yeah, there we go, good, okay. All right, next one. Not happy, right? Does that kid look happy? No, we wanted to play. Happy? Yeah, there we go. You're doing great, you're, you're awesome. You're really passing the test. And I think that's important. I'm not saying that those are wrong, but that, that we have in our head, what does it look like to be happy? What does it look like to be sad? And oftentimes, you know, I think one of the ways that I was, I was raised to grow up is so that, and I think the scripture speaks to us, is to share with those who are happy. Like, oh my gosh, you look like you're so happy. What's going on? And when someone's hurting, to be like, aw, is there anything I can do? And that kind of solidarity with, with people. We are in um, the last search. Sunday of the series, I said, and it's looking at happiness transfigured, looking at happiness in this transfiguration, which is a really big word, um, transfiguration. It has an old, old root. It really means to change something to be more beautiful or elevated, to, to the figure of it, the, the design of it changes and goes through something. And so it is lifted up. But this, this series, we've been talking about this word makarios, which I've repeated over and over again. Um, this Greek word that means blessed. It's the word in the Beatitudes that blessed are the poor in spirit for they shall inherit the earth. But it more closely means happy in, in Greek, in like in Greek, ancient Greek poetry and in the plays. It's a word for someone who's happy, who receives a present in that kind of way. And it's one of those words that in translation, it's more in between blessed and happiness that we have to find that. But We've been looking at ways of understanding that God offers this to us. This something that, that's deeper uh, in following him. Two weeks ago, we talked about how sometimes we get in our own way in seeking God and finding happiness. And we build these structures of the things that we shouldn't do or can't do instead of stepping forward in faith and receiving what God has for us. Last week, we talked about the milk and solid food that sometimes that we need to be honest with ourselves where we are. And sometimes we're ready for a next step in serving God. But sometimes we are just broken and in need of some, some milk, some sustenance, some grace in our lives. And we don't need to feel guilty about what we're not doing and instead receive from the God who loves us, who seeks us out, who forgives us. Today is talking about happiness transfigured in this, this grace feast of transfiguration of, of James and Peter and his brother John going high up on the mountain. That I was privileged enough to go when I visited Alina's family in Israel to go to Mount Tabor, which is historically where they think the Feast of Transfiguration took place. And it's this massive 
which is like a, a mountain standing alone around the plain. And it's, it's enormous, and it's kind of like if I was this big, and like, like really big, like the size of my pinky, and it was up here. And you have to go around and around and around to get up. It was a long drive to get up. It'd be a long way to walk up. It'd be about a half, way, half day's journey, probably, to walk up the mountain. And there was immense, there was immense, the top of it was long and wide. You could see lots of spaces, but it, was, it wasn't an easy walk up a mountain. But this one verse, six days later, you know, Jesus just took them up the mountain, took them on a journey, and they get up there. And like, like uh, Tyler was saying in the anthem, the transfiguration is very front-loaded with what's going on. And so they take him up the mountain. That could have been its own like, chapter in the Bible of like, what are they talking about up this mountain? That was a long journey. What are they going through? But they skip over it. They get to the top of the mountain. And there's this great vision. Jesus is transfigured. And then Moses and Elijah appear. Now, you know, there wasn't like a little blinker card underneath that said, this is Moses pointing him. He didn't have a sign on him. And yet they knew, you know, there wasn't photographs of what Moses looked like. They weren't like looking, okay, now that guy looks like the Moses I saw in the picture. And yet, and yet they recognized him. They recognized Moses. Moses, the prophet who led the people of Israel through the Red Sea out of slavery. Elijah, the prophet who stayed faithful to God in the midst of Israel turning away in the midst of captivity, stayed faithful to God. And then, and then Jesus, the Son of God, who came to lead us through the waters of baptism to freedom from sin. They were all there, and Peter makes, makes a claim that he's like, okay, this is an awesome place. This is the, literally the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life, so I just want to stay here forever. Let's just build some houses. We're going to get down to this. Um, it's, a, it's an honest thing to do. If you have the most powerful experience of your life, you kind of want to maintain it. You don't want it to end. You want to be like, how can I keep doing this thing? If you were given the greatest job ever, you'd be like, this is awesome. I want to just do this the rest of my life. Instead of like, okay, you can do it for 30 minutes and then you have to go back down. So, so he's, he's doing this and Jesus, during, while, he's, while he's speaking, a voice appears from the cloud. This is my son the one in whom I'm well pleased. The same voice that appeared to Jesus when he was baptized, but, but Peter wasn't there, James wasn't there, John wasn't there. This is the first time they've heard this. And so their senses are just being expanded. And so they have this visual sensation of Jesus being transfigured. And they have this oral sensation of this voice from the skies that they'd never heard. This amazingly powerful thing, the coolest thing they've ever seen. And then, what does Jesus do? He says, don't tell anyone. (laughs) And go down the mountain. So not only do they have to leave this amazingly powerful, beautiful thing that has just changed their world, that they've seen things they've never seen before, could not explain before. They've heard things they could have not explained before. But then they're told they cannot speak about it. And they go back down the mountain. They cannot speak about it because it doesn't make sense until after the resurrection. Nobody would understand it. Nobody would believe it. They, in fact, forget. In that time, we see in Holy Week, as we will see in a few weeks, when Peter denies Jesus three times. He forgot what he saw that day. 
He forgot what he witnessed. You see, before transfiguration, before this one moment, they had heard Jesus preach. They had seen him heal others. But this is different. This is different. He is made elevated, made more beautiful. He is put in direct line with Moses and Elijah. Sometimes, though, even good things may not be what we need. This is what's going on on that mountain. That it was a good thing to see Jesus transfigured, but that's not really what, what Peter, James, and John needed. They needed to see it, but they could not stay there. They had to go back down. They had to go to Jerusalem. They had to go to the cross. Peter, in, the, in his letter, Second Peter, fittingly titled, um, talks about these clever myths. He begins, this is a, one of those, it's a wonderful passage because it connects directly with transfiguration, but it starts out, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I like that, that phrase, clever myths. What are some clever myths in this world? There are a lot of them. This, you don't have to answer. It's okay. We can just think in our head. What are some clever myths? I think about um, like sports teams are clever myths. Uh, brands that you purchase, cities to visit, countries, nations, parties are, are clever myths. They're not bad in themselves, but they do not lead us directly to God. And they can be distorted by the humans involved. They're clever myths because if we treat them like we treat the man revealed on the mountain, we're going to destroy ourselves. How can we, though, survive coming down the mountain when we are confronted by these clever myths on all sides? When we are confronted in this world, in the brokenness of this world, in the, in the sickness of this world, in the fractured societies we face, in the crumbling of so much of the world. And there's, there's clever myths that tell us this is how we solve it. This is how we fix it. This is what we need to do. And they, again, not bad in themselves, but the ways they deceive is filling in what was revealed on this mountain. So how can we survive going down the mountain together? I think it's so important that Peter, James, and John were on the mountain together and they came down together. It was not just one of them. The revelation, God being revealed in Jesus Christ, was not revealed to one, but to three. Some of us um, in this church have participated in a ministry called Walk to Emmaus. Many, many people in the church, um, which is a wonderful program that you are all invited and um, to participate in, but it's a really powerful, I think, three-day experience um, where, where people go and they prepare for it and they go spend the time. And most people who go have a really powerful experience of God, an almost mountaintop experience of God. And that's a beautiful thing, but then you've got to come back to work the next day. And that is hard. And there's, there's a number of Emmaus groups and people who have had that experience you can share with, but it's still there's this dissonance between the powerful experience of God and the reality of the day-to-day that comes after. When I was a a youth, I remember going to a midwinter retreat and having this really powerful mountaintop experience with God, 
and then having to go to high school the next day and the challenge of that, of going, in, going from this, this moment of feeling fully loved and understood and forgiven, and then it's like, oh, calculus. <laughs> and that, 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 that dissonance of coming down the mountain, and that doesn't mean that, the, that coming down the mountain, that the valleys are bad in themselves, but we need tools to do it. We cannot face it alone. And so we, we need to come down the mountain together. We need to come down the mountain with a purpose. We need to come down the mountain with Jesus. Together is super important. Together is why we have a church to begin with. Together is why the Christian faith is not about a bunch of isolated automatons following Jesus and bouncing off each other. It is a body of Christ. It is a collectivity. There's challenges in that because since we are people gathered together, people do people stuff. And people stuff sometimes get in the way of Jesus stuff. Um, just to be honest, it happens. But it's still, we need each other. We need to be a part of a community to, to support each other, to hold each other. When one of us is hurting so that we, are, we realize we are all hurting, when one of us is joyful, we can all be joyful together. To survive the valley down from the mountain, we need each other. To have our views of happiness and desires for happiness transfigured. So that we no longer desire the the happiness of the world, but the happiness that God offers to us. That we are forgiven. That we are loved. That we are deserving of love in this world. And it doesn't matter what our job is, what we've done, who we thought we were before, that we are loved right now. We need people in our lives who can remind us of that. As well, we need a purpose in our life. They were coming down the mountain for a purpose. They were coming down the mountain to go to Jerusalem. They were coming down the mountain to go to Jerusalem. That's why the Feast of Transfiguration is always the Sunday before Ash Wednesday. It's this great revelation of Christ before the somberness of Lent. Before the words and the the fastings of Lent. Before the ashes. Before the words, remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return. We don't fast to feel sorry for ourselves. We fast to prepare our hearts. The early Christians fasted to remind themselves about what they really desired, that their belly was not more powerful than their love of God, that they could control their belly, that they could control their desires. It wasn't a way to lose weight. It was a way to remember that Jesus is Lord. That is what the fasting is for. But, but fasting works with feasting. It, there's, there's a real purpose in English why feast and fast are one letter apart. If you think about it, there's only one letter difference between a feast and a fast. They're connected. If you don't have feasts, what's the point in having a fast? And if you don't have fasts, you, it's really kind of not very great to have a lot of feasts. <laughs> if you, need a, you need to slow down on the feasts a little bit. But we come down the mountain together with a purpose, walking towards Jerusalem. I think part of that purpose is that in this world, in this broken world, we need to have a direction if we are going to face the challenges. Face the challenges of life, the challenges of losing a job, the challenges of struggling financially, the challenges of health, the challenges of friends who are hurting and family who are hurting. We cannot face them if we are not going in the direction of the cross. Because a lot of those challenges look a lot like that hill outside Jerusalem. As well, we need to go down the mountain with Jesus. 
that we are not alone, that the God who loves us, who has forgiven us, who has given us a purpose, stands with us, holds us in that journey. In the United Methodist Church, we believe in in provenient grace and grace that comes before, that before we even knew the word God, God was with us. Before you knew about Jesus, God was with you in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is with us. God is not just this big thing far away, this puppet master controlling our lives. God is the one through whom we live and move and have our being here and now. And we can live and do that today. We can build a resilient identity in Christ. That is how happiness can be transfigured. If we remember that what brings us joy doesn't have to be what brings the world joy. That we can take joy in what God has offered us this day. And it doesn't matter if we can't do what we used to be able to do. It doesn't matter if we don't look like how we used to do. It doesn't matter if our friends don't understand us or if our job's not working out, if our health's not working out, that God is here for us. That our desire is not to have, have perfection of appearance, but perfections of love. That John Wesley spoke of Christian perfection, which is a word that's often distorted. Perfection not in being mistake-free, but perfection is having nothing in your heart but love. Christian perfection is a way to describe loving the Lord your God with all your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself. And the possibility of that, the possibility here this day that I could actually love my neighbor that I could actually love my Lord. And not because I am so cool or awesome, but because God is greater than my sin. That no matter what I've done or said to do, God is greater than that. And I'm not going to say that my sin is greater than God's love. And I cannot say that. And that is why we believe in the power of God, that I'm not there yet. When I was ordained as an elder, I had to answer a question, are you going on to perfection in this lifetime? I was told by my bishop, Wilson, are you going on to perfection in this lifetime? I had to say yes, or else they wouldn't ordain me. But, <laughs> but I think I actually, I actually believe it, not that I know it's going to happen, but I believe more in God's love than in my sin. And the power of that, and stepping out into that. And so in order to have your happiness transfigured, there's not one weird trick. It takes a team. It takes a church. It takes a purpose. It takes willingness to say, like, okay, what do I desire in this life? Is my desire, are my desires for, for a, a good retirement, for a, good, for a sports team to win, for a house that doesn't have leaks? Or is my tire, desire for God's love to be spread, shred abroad in my heart? What do I desire in this life? And for all of that, we can remember that at the heart of it, we are loved that you are loved, and that God is making all things new. And so we can be a part of that new creation. What a privilege. You can be a part of that new creation that on the other side of the cross is resurrection. But we have to go through the lonely valley first. Right after um, the message, in just a few minutes, the band is going to come up and play a song called The Transfiguration. It's kind of a fitting song for today. It was written by this um, singer-songwriter from Michigan named Sufjan Stevens. I think I played it last year on the piano, but this will be a little better this year. 
um, a little more introduction. It's, it's one of those odd... So Sufjan Stevens is a, is a Christian, but he's not like a Christian artist. He's not played on Christian radio. He's a very... Like, he was Pitchfork's number one release like 10 years ago, which is, I think, the only Christian ever for that. Um, but he's, a, like, he's an indie artist. He does a lot, of, um, like, a lot of different stuff, a lot of, you know, hipsters really dig him or digged him 10 years ago, that kind of thing. Um, but if, I want you to listen to the words. And so instead of a hymn of response, we're having this special music. And the, and the music kind of builds uh, literally what goes on in the text of the transfiguration. Because part of coming down the mountain, though, is remembering what God did. And remembering that God is Lord. And sometimes what's hard to ha- having a mountaintop experience is it's so easy to go back into daily life. And you, like every day you just forget a little more about what God did for you that day. You forget a little more about, about how beautiful it was. And the power of song, the power of music, the power of the words is to remind us, oh yeah, God is awesome. Oh yeah, that was amazing. Not to make us escape from the realities that we live in, but to strengthen us that we can face this day. Because God revealed himself in Jesus Christ to Peter, James, and John, and God reveals himself to each of us in a myriad of ways. So as we, as we hear these words, as we hear this music, let us think of the ways that God has revealed himself to us. And let us remember that we can continue to look for those ways. That our mountaintop may not be on a mountain. It may be, it may be at a Costco. <laughs> it may be one day. It may be at a street corner. It may be that day that God is revealed and what we see before us is transfigured, is elevated, is made beautiful. Let us be looking for that transfiguration and let it strengthen us in this day as we walk towards Lent. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.